Welcome to Modern Figures Podcast, hosted by Dr. Jeremy Waysom and Dr. Kyla McMullen, where we are elevating the voices of Black women in computing to inspire the next generation of the advanced technology workforce. This podcast exists to highlight the stories of Black women in computing, to inspire high schoolers and the young at heart, and to dispel the myths and preconceptions about Black women in computing. This podcast wouldn't be possible without our sponsors. This season is generously supported by NCWIT and CRAWP. The National Center for Women and Information Technology, or NCWIT, is a nonprofit community that convenes, equips, and unites change leader organizations to increase the influential and meaningful participation of girls and women in technology. And the Computing Research Association's Committee on Widening Participation in Computing, or CRAWP, endeavors to increase the success and participation of underrepresented groups in computing research and education at all levels. Hello, everyone. Today, we have an extremely special guest with us. We have Dr. Christina Harrington. She hails from North Carolina, and she's currently an assistant professor in the HCI Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. Her PhD is in accessible interaction design with a minor in human factors and aging from Georgia Tech. Her master's is in industrial design from North Carolina State University, and her bachelor's is in electrical engineering from Virginia Tech. So she's been at all the tech schools, all the high hitting schools. Um, She's also been a visiting faculty researcher at Google, an assistant professor at DuPaul, and a postdoctoral researcher at Northwestern University. Currently, she directs the equity and Health Innovations Design Research Lab. So we're going to get into that in a bit. And she describes herself as a designer and qualitative researcher who focuses on understanding and conceptualizing technology experiences that support health and wellness among older adults and individuals with disabilities. She explores constructs of empowerment and access among communities that are marginalized across multiple dimensions of identity. So age, race, ethnicity, income, and class. So anecdotally, um, I first met Christina at the Black Computer Conference, and I'm trying to remember if it's 2018 or 2019, I can't remember, but um, I just remember thinking like, we need to have her on the podcast ASAP, she will leave. And I think you may have still been a postdoc at that time. So, you know, I'm so happy to have seen your progress, you know, through that point. I think you were on a panel called like, what no one told you about being a Black woman in academia. Mm -hmm. And if you've never been to Black Computer, like there's always these just really insightful panels. So um, this was definitely one of them. And also, uh, in my opinion, Christina wins the award for the most creative Instagram account when it comes to a faculty member, because all of her pictures are always just so like creative and artistic. And it's like, she is having a good time. So welcome. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really excited. Kyla's been hyping you up. So, I mean, I don't know how hype you are today, but (laughs) hopefully hopefully this conversation will get us, you know, somewhere exciting because one, I'm trying to find this Instagram account account right now. (laughs) My friends joke me that I'm um, I'm always at a two. (laughs) I don't think that that's accurate, but I think maybe a lot of the time, a lot of the times I'm at a two. Oh, a two. Mm-hmm. I'm very hmm. 
Or do you think of yourself chill. as like introverted or Very are you just so. like okay really but, a, but an extroverted introvert when i'm comfortable oh okay. okay we will definitely keep that in mind a two that's far away from me <laughs> right we're definitely <laughs> 10 out of 10s mm-hmm. <laughs> so this but, will be really interesting so hopefully we'll we'll get you to be comfortable so you'll share more things with us um, yes I've been learning my... about introverts, so I I know that they that you all exist. I don't understand <laughs> it, but I am trying. <laughs> You're probably doing better than me. So, were you always introverted? Was that something like throughout your childhood that existed? Yeah, um, I'm one of those people that um, I think now in my adulthood, it's 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 become one of those things where I'm like, I talk when I find it necessary um i'm comfortable in my silence Mm. um and my contrast oftentimes with extroverts is extroverts are very uncomfortable with silence or just like chill paced things um and so i've and i i know i can be extroverted around like you know it's like my my group of friends or whatever but more often than not, I'm kind of just m- mellow and like kind of chill. Um, yeah, super chill. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. So, were you like into science, tech, computing stuff when you were a kid too? Yeah, I was a tinkerer. Um, mm. I um, my mom. I don't remember at what point but started sending me to the math and science center um in richmond virginia that had to have been like around middle school because in elementary school um we were in and out of north carolina a lot but um at some point i started going to the math and science center i started learning about lego like uh, robotic legos um, before mm-hmm. it was like te- tectonics that's like a thing now um i started learning about like java and uh, creating like computer visualizations and uh, mm-hmm. but then i was also at home like what can i make out of this random piece of foam that came out of this box you know yep. stuff like that i used to I remember um, my mom. My mom worked a lot when I was growing up. Like at one point, she was working like three jobs at one time. And I, I remember feeling like, oh, she's always on her feet. Her feet probably hurt. I want to make her a pair of shoes, and like uh, going around the house just trying to find comfortable materials. So like <laughs> styrofoam and bubble wrap and like and lay and taking a pair of her shoes and tracing them, and then trying oh, wow. to layer them. I was like, if I, how many layers do you have to make to make a pair? I didn't know how shoes were made, um, but I was, but, <laughs> but I was always interested in the inner workings of things, like how 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 are things made, and then how do they work on the inside? Um, and then my uncle, my mom's brother, uh, went to school for electrical engineering at um, wow. North Carolina A and T, and so I wanted to go to uh, uh, North Carolina A and T for engineering. Um, and so high school, you know, I took like engineering drafting and I was always, I kind of excelled at like math and physics and stuff like that. 
Um, and I only ended up at Virginia Tech because they had this pre-college initiative program that my mom used to drive us up to um, like once a month, I think, through Nesby. Wow. I was going to um, say, it sounds like Nesby. <laughs> yeah. So somebody told my mom that about like PCI that was going on up at Tech. Um, but we didn't, I think the part that she didn't realize was like, there was a bus for the kids that came from Danville and Martinsville, which is like Southwest Virginia, like Mm -hmm. country Virginia. Um, but my mom was like, I want my daughter in this program. So you had this bus of all these students, like their parents dropped them off in the morning and the bus drove them up to Virginia tech. And then you had Carolyn Harrington who was driving me. by herself (laughs) three hours to go to this program that was maybe like four or five hours and then driving back from Blacksburg, Virginia to Richmond, Virginia, which is like a three hour drive, you know, like, um, and the program staff just kind of came to love my mom and they were just like, you know, they, they wanted me to come to tech. So I ended up going to Virginia tech. Okay, Nesby success story. Yeah. Right. (laughs) How many of those do we have on the podcast? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. A lot of people mention Nesby a lot, but you are like the prototype for why PCI is what it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I did PCI, but I did not want to go to UCF. (laughs) Sorry, UCF people uh, from Orlando. They were a catalyst for you to be in engineering. Yeah. I love that. So, like, that had to be a very different experience, right? Like actually going to Virginia Tech versus. Yes, you know. I. My entire family went to HBCUs. I, literally, if they went to college, they went to HBCUs. Mm. And you cannot tell them that I was not going to an HBCU. <laughs> um, my mom's side is from Fayetteville, North Carolina. My dad's side is from Goldsboro. In Fayetteville, we grew up across the street from Fayetteville State. I actually happened to have on a t-shirt that I got from. Was my that grandma. on purpose? No, um, I, I I just pulled this out <laughs> this morning. <laughs> um, I didn't even think about it, but yeah, we grew up grew up across the street from Fayetteville State. So, like, you couldn't tell me I wasn't going to an HBCU. I think walking on Tech's campus as a freshman was so much different than when I would go, when I would come up for PCI, PCI was a couple of hours. You're surrounded by like all these black engineers in one space. That was kind of Mm -hmm. the view and the lens that you had of what it would be like to A, be an engineer. Cause the only engineer I knew was my uncle and he went to A&T. So I was like, engineers are black. What do you mean? Um, (laughs) and then B, what it would be like to go to this university. Um, I think I had been on like VCU's campus a couple of times and my mom and my dad and my aunt and my uncle, they all went to Winston-Salem State. Um, So -hmm. I had been there for homecomings and stuff. I had been to Fayetteville State um, because we grew up across the street. We used to go to homecomings and whenever the band was playing, we would just be outside. You know, I went for basketball camps Um, and I had been to like UNC, but for basketball, for basketball camps. I think going to Virginia Tech as an undergrad um, in engineering was a little jarring because I was like, where did all of these white people come from? (laughs) Where all the, where's the concentration of 
black folks that I thought I was coming into. And then because Blacksburg is only like two and a half hours from Greensboro, once I got a car in undergrad, I stayed on Auntie's campus for the homecomings <laughs> and the Battle of the Bands and um, all the things, just random weekends, um, stuff that you had no business doing, but the stuff that you do in undergrad to have fun because the yard aspect of things was kind of missing for me mm-hmm. at Virginia Tech, right? Um, until I pledged, like I just didn't feel and even now, um, you know, I talk to my chapter sorors all the time and I'm like, I, I'm connected to them. That's like my second family, but the connection to the yard, it's just, it's much, it's much different engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, because I also have kind of distanced myself from engineering. It's just, you know, it's not really where I identify anymore. So was were the folks at these other universities, was that like your primary community during undergrad or were you able to find any other uh, pieces of community on campus at Virginia Tech? I wasn't really, I wasn't even trying to make friends at NC, um, at a and I was taking, I was, I was like Harriet Tubmaning people from Virginia Tech down to a and <laughs> like, come on y'all, it's fun. <laughs> I know it's the battle of the bands this weekend. Getting a car, and it would and it was like it would. I have a max of five people I could fit in this car. Yes, and five people. You know, at the time, my ex boyfriend. I was like, his roommate can fit two of y'all and then three of y'all. Like, I. It was never like, oh, I'm going to Ant to make you know friends. It was like, let me bring the friends from Virginia Tech because we were all sitting there bored. Yeah. yeah. You had the occasional alpha party or the occasional, I will say that my time at Virginia Tech, looking back on it, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, um, downplay it. It was fun. Um, much more fun than what I hear the the students are having on the yard now. We had a lot more going on, but it wasn't, it wasn't the HBCU atmosphere that I kind of was looking forward to in college. Um Again, like as, until I pledged, and then after I pledged, it was road tripping with Delta a lot. Like, hey y'all, we going over here? To, we're going down to, um, uh, well, not NC State, but what's the uh, NC Central? We're going down to NC Central for their homecoming, and the Deltas are doing this show, and then we're going to Virginia State. We're going to VUU, and we were just everywhere. Um, and that was what kind of made up my car. It was, it was this blur of like road trips. <laughs> I mean, sounds like a good blur, you mm-hmm. know, so one kind of common theme that we usually hear from our guests is like just having community. Like even if you're in this really insular, mostly white environment, you know, we find ways to make our community. So mm-hmm. even being an introvert, you're like, look, I'm going to make this community whatever way that I need to and, you know, be able to piece together a really good experience. So mm-hmm. no, that's that's really cool. Yeah. I think it's really interesting, you know, that, I don't know, Blacksburg is really isolated, Mm -hmm. right? Like, and I don't think that people talk about that sometimes is like, depending on where you go to school, it may be just your school. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the radius of like stuff. I don't, I don't, I don't know how people survive. Like I was 
struggling as an undergrad in Gainesville mm-hmm. because I was like, I, I just got to go to Orlando. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm get in the car. We, we out. Um, so I, I really resonate with that. But people don't talk about like you had that option to be like, yeah, I don't want to be here. So I'm going to be <laughs> over there. It's hard. But I'm because... still going to do my work. Blacksburg is also the first place ever in my life. And this is me growing up in North Carolina, spending summers or weekends in Goldsboro, North Carolina, spending summers and weekends in Columbia, South Carolina, where my uncle, um, my my dad's brother is from, having family in Houston, going to family reunions down there. Blacksburg was the first place I was ever called with the ER. Wow. That happened to me too. Over something stupid. It it was like the, the weekend that we got there, a group of us, like, you know, you move into the dorms and you're like, oh, you're black and you're black. Let's go do something. Mm-hmm. And somebody had a car and they were like, we're going to drive to like downtown Blacksburg, which is just Main Street. Um, and we're going to go, I think we were like trying to check out a bar or so- something. And... Um, the person that was had the car was dropping us off on the corner and it was a but like we had piled in the car like we're on laps like this like you know and so we're like trying to get out of the car by trying to jimmy rig to get out the car when we get down there um we didn't he didn't park he just stopped at the light was dropping us off was going to go park and the person behind him i guess it, it took us so long that the light turned red again they missed the light and the guy like leans out the window and he's like Fucking, and we're like over a red light right like what is wrong what are we doing here <laughs> you're that angry over a red light right. um so yeah people don't it unfortunately it's a lot of like a lot of the prestigious especially when you talk about like computer science and engineering i was fortunate enough you know, when you talk about like my master's and my, my, my doctorate, um, people have always joked that like I've traveled down the ACC and I was like, yeah, but I've also been intentional to never end up in another Blacksburg. Mm. I found the places that were strong schools, but were in okay cities to be mm-hmm. a black queer woman living by myself. Yeah. Um, because Blacksburg ain't it. Yeah. And people I mean, don't realize how real. important that is for mm-hmm. our safety and like how when you recruit like any position, grad school, faculty, like you need to consider the safety of the person that you're recruiting. And yeah, somebody else who doesn't have the same demographic may be able to sight unseen, go somewhere and have an excellent experience. But uh, I think academia is definitely slacking on this realization or they have to give us some kind of, I don't know, it's not even cost of living. It's like, I mean, it is the cost of living, but you know, some sort of like equalizer to be like, you know what, you can live in populous city X and be remote because we know that living here can be toxic. It's a support infrastructure, right? Like, I think we saw it after 2020 when everybody was popping up with these DEI or racial justice or race in this positions and you're like okay cool you got us here now what where's the support mm. infrastructure right you can't just you can't just pop a, a black queer woman into you know and I, I'm not speaking about anybody specifically because I don't even know who's on faculty at Virginia Tech or 
you know, um, uh, Indianapolis or, um, you know, uh, uh, Kentucky or like these places where it's like, you know, you have a diversity problem, you know, you have a numbers problem, but the extent of your analysis of fixing it is to just get someone there. But what happens when you get them there? If they're the sole person, they're not going to stay because I'm by myself. And eventually it's going to eat at me either in my social life outside of this position in academia or the invisible labor of being the black faculty that now the black students are like, oh my God, you know, I I have someone, but I don't, these aren't my students. (laughs) <laughs> I don't advise these students, right. you know, and that, but now I have to have an open, I don't have to, but you know, I'm going to want to have an open door policy that they can come and talk to me and, you know, get support for whatever. Um, and but I don't now think you're a, carrying their burdens mm-hmm. too, yeah. right? I don't think a lot of departments really, they, I don't think they get that far in their, oh, we need to bring such and such to be here. They yeah. definitely don't. So you did a bachelor's in electrical engineering. What made you switch to industrial design? Mm, That's a funny story. So when I um, came into tech, um, another uh, Nesby seed. So at Virginia Tech, there was the Center for Engineering Enhancement Diversity, um, CEED. And they used to have this summer bridge program called Aspire. I don't remember what that acronym stands for, so we're just going to say Aspire. It's yeah, Aspire. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was like 40 of us, um, black, you know, Hispanic. Um, I think we even had a couple Asian students that were coming into engineering that took like those pre-college um, courses of like engineering education, calculus, and physics. Um, and... The summer of 04, it was like 30 dudes and like 10 girls. If that, maybe 34 dudes and like six girls. (laughs) Wow. So, but those are my homies, right? Um, The ones that, you know, ended up sticking around and like not transferring or whatever. And so I think like sophomore year, I'm hanging out with like two or three of them. Um, um, my, my, My good friend, Dwayne Rollins, and my friend, Jamie Howard. Um, they were both ME at the time and were getting a a minor in industrial design. I was like, mm. I never heard of this. I'm bored. I'm going to go to class with y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm bored. I'm going to go, I'm going to go to class with y'all. Um, <laughs> cause these were my brothers, like all of, like all of them. These were my brothers. These were the guys that was like, Everclear, what's that? Or... <laughs> Y'all are going to the gym. I'm going to, you know. Um, so I went to class with them. I went to Mitzi Vernon's um, design research methods class. And, you know, I'm single. I have yet to have that, oh, I see a person and I know it's the one. But I had that moment in Mitzi Vernon's design research methods class. Wow. I was like, this is it. I was like, what am I wow. doing? Did you have a flashback to the shoes where you were like, mm-hmm. I've been a all designer of it. my whole life. <laughs> all of it connected. And I, and I, and then, but, I, and I didn't have the language then that I have now of like, why was I never exposed? Why did I never have the access to design? Mm. I remember telling my counselor 
in high school, um, even though I knew my uncle was an electrical engineer and I, I, you know, I was like, I want to be an electrical engineer. Why? Because I want to, I want to create electronics, but really what I was describing was, was design, Hmm. but no one ever said, Hey, you know, here's this field that you might be interested in. If you're smart in math and science, it's like, go be an engineer. Right. Um, so I went to this, this, this design methods class with them. And then literally, so walked... wait, you weren't taking the course. You were just in there. I was just in there. <laughs> she was hanging out. Okay. I was just in there. I was just posted up. And we literally walked out that class. We literally walked out that class, and I was like, "Where is the the front office of this department?" And they walked me to the front office, and I was like, "I want to get my minor in industrial design too." What are the classes I need to take? And then. It just it just shifted everything. Like I took um, a couple of ideation classes, I took design research methods, I took a materials and processes class. I changed what my senior capstone thesis was going to be. Instead of it being just about looking at the radius of, um, I was looking at sensor radiuses and like you know how they how it bounces off walls and how far and da 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 da. I was, I designed the housing for the sensor. So I designed like the hardware, um, and like we prototyped it. Um, and I'm, I linked up with these, these two twins, these two, I don't remember their names. These two white guys, they were runners, but they were also, they were in my design studio and we worked together on my, my senior capstone thesis of, you know, thinking about and this was before Apple watches or anything like that, but we were thinking about what would it, what would it look like to have a wearable sensor that would alert you that would alert runners and joggers and cyclists that something of a certain mass and speed was coming into a cone of radius Mm -hmm. for like jogger safety. Yeah. So a car, they still need to do that. Yeah, a car, right. <laughs> a deer, uh, another a deer. bike or motorcycle, right? Something, you know, like thinking about, because yeah. you don't want it to go off of like a squirrel is like, you know, right. Kind of, right. or like a bird. But like, if I'm running at night and something of a certain mass and certain of a, some, a certain speed is coming into my cone of radius, that it'll alert me to get off the road or to make sure I'm looking around. So that became my senior capstone thesis. And I started looking at, you know, oh, I want to go back to school, to grad school for design. Um, I had already, I was being like recruited by different jobs like NASA and Motorola. And I ended up taking Motorola because NASA, for whatever reason, not NASA, NSA, excuse me, NSA, for whatever reason, their offering salary was like a little insulting. Mm. Um, yeah, <laughs> to be moving and living in DC, it was like forty five mm. at that time. Forty five. Yeah, no, this was in like two thousand eight, two thousand nine. No, ma'am. Like, no. For, I, I think like, they meant one forty five to be in the area. <laughs> right is what you would need to live, but they were offering right. forty five and something about like government grades. You know, you they go oh, up. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I was like, eh. and this is after y'all interviewed everybody and they mama literally in my life <laughs> like because wow. you know they do that to have like top yeah. security clearance they pop up on your, right. your mama's front yard 
They, right, pop right. Up, they, they call your grandmother. Like, it's intense. <laughs> um, they got to make sure you're safe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I ended up going to work for Motorola for a year. Um, I had that job just to pay for being 22 in D.C. for a year. I don't Your like... Your face when you were like, <laughs> I had that job, like, was like... <laughs> I didn't like... I was not trying to be here. I realized what I didn't like about engineering was that I didn't really get to talk to people. Mm. Like, we were designing radio packages for the government, but it was like we never got to talk to the the users who were using us to know, like, what the challenges that you were having. Like, it's like, oh, okay this isn't working let's go back to our calculations we're not talking to them to know why it's not working maybe it has nothing to do with the calculations right maybe it has to do with how the people are using it um but that was early before they were really doing mm -hmm. user experience oh yeah Yeah. it was like budding at that point yeah what was user experience in 2009 there there was no there was no language for that wasn't it's like thing. the computer is right, and if you can't get the right result, you're using the computer wrong yep. versus let's think about what the end user has in mind. Yep. And I remember going back to tech for either a homecoming or some something some random weekend. Woodrow Winchester was at Virginia Tech at that time, and he was starting the HCI lab, and I had never heard of HCI. I'd like what was HCI? He right. was one of the first. It was really, really, really disappointing that they did not give that man tenure at Virginia mm. Tech because he he was doing the things. And a friend and I sat in his lab and was listening to him explain what he did. And I was like, that's what I want to do. Hmm. So, but I didn't, even then I didn't, I don't, I don't know if there were like really like master's programs. So like I applied to, and NC State was the only program I applied to. Oh, wow. um, because Woodrow Winchester, when he was talking to us, you know, and then I had went to, so I was like, I'm going to go get my master's in industrial design. And it was kind of all over the place at first. Like I want to design furniture to support, you know, tall people. I, I want to, <laughs> you know, I wanted, and then it was, it just settled on this broad area of like, I want to design things to help people, excuse me, with disabilities and impairments. Because it kind of, you know, my senior capsule and thesis, what I was able to do there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I found research. And I say all of these things as like these big aha moments because I'm like. They are. But yeah. I look back at it. I look back on it with disappointment that mm. the public school system, when you're, when you're, when they're working with black and brown kids of a certain income, no one ever thinks about exposing you to those things you're kind of written off yeah because I remember like my mom so she went to Winston-Salem State undergrad but she did her master's in social work at UNC and I play ball in high school I am like a huge basketball fan I wanted to go to UNC so bad (laughs) um when I was like you know mid high school and I remember my guidance counselor being like you know you live in a single parent household, um, y'all's finances, you should just go to community college. Wow. Are you serious? And as I traversed like my my journey of 
like grad school and all of these things, you start to realize, no, I have an aptitude that I should have been guided towards yes. maybe doing like a summer research program or yes. something like you, right. these students now that I'm, 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 you know, interviewing or I'm talking to that are interested in coming to work with me. And they're like, oh yeah, I did research with such and such in high school. And you're like, that was never like introduced That's to me. Nice. Yes. Yeah. They were like, you play basketball, but you're not good enough to go to, to a school for it. So you should go to community college because that's all your mom can afford. Um, and it's, 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 I mean, I think I've, I've managed to do extremely well despite, you know, never having known about any of this stuff until I fell into, like, I fell into learning what research was working with Sharon Joins at um, NC State and her research in ergonomics and design lab. And I was like, oh, like all these questions that are swirling in my head and that I've been writing in all of these notebooks, I can like r design like an experiment or a study to like answer those questions. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember just, you know, in college and grad school and volunteering for these kinds of programs for other people and just having this chip on my shoulder about like how I would have just been like the bee's knees. Like I would have done so much more. Not to say like I was a terrible student, but I feel like if I've been exposed to like those kind of opportunities, like I would have some, a switch would have turned a lot mm -hmm. quicker and like, I don't know. I, I had to struggle with being like, okay, well, these kids have an opportunity. So mm -hmm. be jealous. Like little high school slash, you know, middle school me was sitting there hating in the corner. Like I could do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it, it I also about research at that age though. Like I think, I think so you don't know this about me, Christina, but I grew up with, you know, a lot of financial support. Right. And mm. like, I didn't know what a college professor was, like what they mm. did for real, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like even now you've got students who don't realize, you know, oh, you're a faculty member. That means, like, if you're an assistant professor, your bread and butter is probably research money and not, mm -hmm. like, from my tuition, like they like to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... um. What's what's funny is I think there's also the additional layer of having the time. So like in undergrad, I was a work study student. Mm. Um, you're having to work, you know, for income and for your financial aid. It also kind of and, and, and not having research be introduced to you as an option for that yeah. um, also kind of presents a barrier um because the jobs i had in work study child i worked like as like a a badge at the the person who would sign people into the gym mm. i worked as uh i worked in a, in a biomedical lab cleaning like uh the the incubator tubes like i put them in the machine and turn it on and um i worked in admissions um like look uh filing documents out of people's like uh, applications like I had so many random jobs um which I think you know and I, I'm never gonna I'm never gonna say I regret any piece of my journey because um I do sometimes wonder if um kind of the students now are able to experience any element of fun um hmm. if they're so worried about getting it and like if you're so worried about doing an internship with microsoft um in high school like you know 
are you doing the aimless things? I was laughing because um, that that new documentary that came out about and one, mm-hmm. um, the 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 rise and fall of and one, and I was like, oh, I remember when they came to Richmond and like me and my homegirls. Um, this was back when jersey dresses were a thing. So like two thousand two, two thousand three. <laughs> Please don't mention those. Yes, <laughs> so we we put on I our really little jersey dresses. And our flay, like our flay, we called them flaves in, in, uh, growing up in Richmond. The Air Force mm-hmm. ones, we called them flaves. And our flaves and a fitted. Can't tell you and, nothing. Okay. Yeah, it was like front row and center at the Air Force, at the, at the N1 game and the after party. <laughs> and, Man. you know, like, what am I thinking about no internship or no, right. like, <laughs> what I needed to do to get into college? I applied. I'll wait for them to hit me back. Like, right. <laughs> That's it. amazing. That's hilarious. <laughs> I remember watching those things and being like, "Wow, like this is my culture." Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it was. It. it was sick. Oh God, that was a time. I'm mad you brought up jersey dresses. Like, why? They had a hold on everybody's life on black women. <laughs> First, yes. Yes. yes, I've not thought about a jersey dress since they were in style. <laughs> Listen, that could be your next Halloween costume situation, oh, Kyla. I'm not it's doing a, it. It's yeah, a reoccurring it. thought. It's a reoccurring thought for me because I was I was tall and there was never really like consideration for like it being of a length that was <laughs> They were all inappropriate sensical. Yes. My God. I remember oh God. Like I remember showing up to the guy's house that I was dating at the time and his mom deciding that she was going to do the laundry in the room that we were in because that jersey dress was it, too it, short. It covered Ooh. nothing. And someone should... <laughs> wow. She said, let me just go ahead and park myself right here. Right. right to ensure She's nothing like, happens. I'm going to be here. What y'all doing? Please. Right. Because someone should have told me. But it was... I mean, that's just how they made them. And then they, I was right. like, you know... It was like wearing a jersey that was contoured to your body yeah but it wasn't like an extended there was no length extension or like let us try to hit mid thigh Mm -mm. no Mm -mm. it was a jersey dress where the dress part was silent (laughs) 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 they did not think about that is amazing that's so silly okay where are we so but you got a phd Mm -hmm. from georgia tech Mm -hmm. why georgia tech because Atlanta. Okay. And because Georgia's heck. Um, okay. And I think that those two things for me. Um, so, well, let me, let me rephrase. Also design. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those, like, I wanted to go to, I wanted to get my PhD in design. There are, in the United States, excuse me, formal uh, design PhD programs like four or five. Hmm. Mm-hmm. NC State has one. Um, IIT, the Illinois Institute of Technology, has one. Cornell has what is it? Uh, environmental analysis and human ecology. It's okay. You weren't going up there. Yeah, no, <laughs> but I applied. The criteria. Oh, okay. I applied. So, the, so the thing going. was, I applied to to multiple ones, knowing that Georgia Tech was where I wanted to go. Uh huh. Um. And then Juan had someone call me from his head, um, Hamilton, 
call me from his lab and a couple other students about coming to Clemson. Juan was oh, at Clemson right. at the time. <laughs> and All back to Juan. Listen. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember taking that phone call and being like, oh my God, like what? Um, <laughs> even though it wasn't designed, but it was like human-centered computing. Didn't know what that was at the time. I was like, had no idea what that was. And I was like, this is a really strong program. I would love to go, but I'm not going to Clemson, South Carolina. I did Blacksburg. I'm sorry. I was like, it's I, another Blacksburg. I yep. was there for a hot second. And spoiler alert, racism. Yep. <laughs> and that, and so he had Hamilton. So Ham called me. Um, Ham was a bruh from Norfolk State that was at. Virginia. I remember him. He's yeah. like an entomologist. Yeah. At, he studies the, the bees and yeah. insects and things. Insects. Yeah. He was at Virginia Tech when I was at when I was there in undergrad. So when Juan had folks call me from Clemson, like I remember talking to him and being like, yo, be honest with me. Is this a place where I'm going to be constantly reminded um in a negative way that I'm black? He's like, yeah, but you know what Juan Dix, like what Juan Gilbert is doing with that lab. I'm gonna start Juan Dixon. I've been watching Real Housewives of Potomac real heavy. <laughs> That's Potomac, right? That is Potomac. It is on my Y'all better me. be happy Juan Dixon is not here. Yes. Um, what Juan Gilbert is doing with that lab is just revolutionary because it was like a lab of like all black and Hispanic students. And I was like, yeah, but I, I can't. Like I can't go to another place. Like I, I just, I can't do it. Um, so I chose Georgia Tech, uh, because I, I would be in Atlanta, I would be in the South, you know, their Georgia Tech is highly ranked in yep. design was really the extent of what I knew. I didn't discover HCI until I got there and had, you know, really started like taking classes and, um, I kind of, well, I also discovered that Georgia Tech school of design was refining its phd Hmm. uh, and design program which meant that we had to decide what classes we wanted to take and some of them were in the school of design for me some of them were in the college of computing and then some of them were in engineering psychology so that's cool wait you said engineering psychology Mm -hmm. so human factors um, psychology because yeah, I was really interested like I said coming from an industrial design background uh, or not background but like you know really that framework I was really interested in like what about a product makes a person use it so like the cognitive right yeah like what is our attachment um, I had done some research and like what um, in my dissertation ended up uh, what they call persuasive design. Mm. Um, So how does the design of a thing compel you to use it or change your behavior? Yeah. I Um, was actually, when you said human, wait, engineering, engineering psychology, psychology, my first thought was like, maybe it's like a cognition. It is all about, it's all about um, cognition and ergonomics. So also, how do we fit the thing to the person, mentally and physically? This is so scary to me, right? So I (laughs) I have a cousin. Well, I have a cousin who works at Meta. And we've had conversations about how, like, you know, the design of a game, 
right, is really to get you to keep playing it, Mm -hmm. right? And how they embed ads. Those ads are designed to either piss you off so much that you're like, let me click it and like do it and complain or something like that. Or, you know, you're like so intrigued that you have to buy it. And you, so like, it's all like mental, Mm -hmm. right? And so if we don't understand how people think, we can't advertise to them. So hearing you say that like makes complete sense. Yes. But that, it's also I mean, terrifying. That, that, those were whole classes I took in psychology. It was like understanding how per- people perceive information, how we store information. Um, if you create a visual, like, you know, you've seen those images where it's like, look at the black dots amongst the grid. And you kind of have to like focus your eyes to make the grid go to the back and the black dots come to the yeah, front. So yeah. when we're thinking about design, design and engineering psychology actually end up going hand in hand. But at that time, you know, not all academic programs were seeing it that way. Right. Mm-hmm. So when I'm thinking about, okay, well, if we're designing an interface, so for example, if we're designing an interface to try to get people to be more physically active, we need to a understand how people we, we need to a, understand people's motivations mm-hmm. um, and strategies and techniques of behavior change. So I took classes in engineering psychology and public health um, to help me understand how do we how do you motivate a person right when you the 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 simpler um, kind of uh, not equations but like these simpler models now of like, okay, it takes 21 days to, to change or to create a habit. How do we know that? And then how do we design for that? So to your point, um, for designing to get somebody to keep using things, we use incentives, we use, um, competition. So, um, you know, my fitness pal, that's like, Hey, add your friends and see who can mm-hmm. walk the most over 21 days. Well, by the end of 21 days, now you got to have it. So even after the competition <laughs> is over, you're still walking. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's actually what my dissertation at, uh, Georgia tech focused on was how we can, in, but I focused on it with the aging population, mm. um, how we could get people because my, my, um, appeal to design has always been about everyday technology technologies or everyday products that you have in the home um so yeah, you said you were interested in chairs so i feel like yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> like chairs and shoes <laughs> yeah is um, it don norman or Dan, who's like the design of ordinary things yeah don norman that book. Yeah. yeah 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 so yeah that was like the the text for a lot of intro classes which that's a whole other thing as to like don norman, that book is great but it's the north star among many other white male authored books that are considered the North stars of design that it needs to shift. Mm. Um, but yeah, like I, I was able to put those classes together. I was, I was engaged in a lot of really great research. I mean, Georgia tech's known for that. Mm -hmm. Um, um, and I was around and, collaborated with um, a lot of amazing uh, faculty at Georgia Tech that kind of helped propel my career. Like I never would have known about Kai or designing interactive systems or any of these conferences had it not been for like Lauren Wilcox, who was on my committee um, and some other folks in the School of Design. School of Design, design is a field um, depending on the type of 
design field that you're in, but design is not a really big, like, we publish papers at conferences type field. Um, a lot of that came from um, doing research with, with um, Wendy Rogers and Lauren Wilcox and uh, Ellen Doe, who was also on my committee, uh, because they all sat at these intersections of other subdiscipline, like other feet, like engineering, psychology, computing. Um, Ellen Doe did a lot with like architecture, but um, what is it called? It's like architectural modeling or something like that. It's like the computery side of architecture. <laughs> um, and so I've I've always just positioned myself as a very interdisciplinary person. It's super interesting because like right now I'm a faculty in computer science, but I am by no means a computer scientist. Um, <laughs> Team not computer scientist. Here y'all go. <laughs> <laughs> nor nor would I really even consider what I do to be computing. I I've, I mean in everything I use to describe myself, I say that I'm at the intersection of HCI and design. Um, because I'm less focused on a particular technological platform or a technological medium more. I'm, I'm, I'm more so concerned with how people use technology, the impact and influence technology has on people. Um, how do we shift it to be more equitable? So how do we expand the reach of technology? And then what I've become in the last few years publishing is how do we expand the reach of design? Because mm -hmm. like I said, I never had the language of design in my lexicon growing up. I had no idea what design was. Um, and not to say it as like a pipeline thing or like a STEM K through 12 thing, but like a, how do we just expand it period, like across the board, because there are people well into their careers that you know what their desire is is to actually be doing design and it's like how do i get into it um mm -hmm. and now you have like a lot of like boot camps and stuff popping up like you can go do like a nine-week course to become a ux designer and stuff like that but how do we really understand the magnitude and the extent of everything that design flows into because design flows into everything design is everything and everything is by design um including that's a mood like structures systems policies when we talk about um housing segregation in certain cities that's by design you know um redlining was designed to keep Listen. black people in certain neighborhoods and white people in certain neighborhoods and certain neighborhoods affluent and other neighborhoods you know destitute like you know just not poor funding yeah. into them so how can design address redlining and housing segregation how can design address potentially like you know institutional racism what we're seeing yeah. with faculty not being in these programs but then being propped in these programs and not really having support that could be a design problem um so that's kind of a very um oscillating journey of how I got from electrical engineering to here. 
That's really but it makes cool. so much sense. Like it makes so much sense. And I like the fact that you bring out how like there's design in everything, but we mm -hmm. kind of don't think about it because every choice you make is an eventual is how you're designing something, whether you realize it or not. Mm -hmm. And even bringing in the case of like just faculty and institutions, like every single choice policy is affecting the overall design. Mm -hmm. But also you said that you're not, you know, technically a computer scientist i don't think it's an either or thing like mm. design can't exist without computing and computing can't exist without proper design like, mm -hmm. so you you know they have a marriage they go hand in hand whether or not you know uh, core computer scientists want to accept that you need to actually design things correctly in order for them to be useful. Um, you know, that's neither here nor there. I hope we don't have these conversations in, in future years, but mm -hmm. I feel like they go hand in hand because you can make the world's greatest tool and nobody knows how to use it. So what, what are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> so. I, I, I say that because oftentimes I'm in these spaces where design is kind of this fuzzy thing. You know, design doesn't really have, it's like if you think about like, like cracking an egg, right? And like design is like the, the white around the yolk, whereas computer science is like, traditional computer science is the yolk. There's bounds, there's models, there's frameworks, there's theories, there's explanations of a lot of things. Sometimes designers are just like, I'll throw this at this wall and if it sticks, that's cool. <laughs> right. And, they're, and somebody's like, how did you do that? Oh, no. I just, <laughs> you know, I just, I just thought it should be a button right there. Yeah, I just kept iterating <laughs> until it did. So in that way, academically, right? Like theoretically, yeah. yes, computer science and design go hand in hand. But like the ways that we think about it, oftentimes hardcore computer sciences are like, I don't get design. And design is like, I'm not trying to be as stringent as hardcore computer science. The students think a whole lot differently when you, I mean, mm -hmm. the students that come in and are just in one program or the other, it's yeah. a, it's a completely different world. And when you teach mm -hmm. classes at the intersections, you af oftentimes find yourself having to do everything at a very introductory level because some people are like, I've no idea. I've never designed an app, right? I code. Uh, that's what I do. I know the, you know, I got, I know Python, I know whatever, whatever. And then you have some people that are like, I have no Python. There's a snake in here. Like what? <laughs> that's not the class I signed up for. So you're like, Ooh, how do I teach intro to HCI <laughs> when I have this student coming from this background and this student coming from this background so that people don't feel like, Oh, I know that. And I'm, I'm going to, you know, kind of zone out on that lecture. Cause I know everything you're explaining for me, it's talking about like methods and processes. Because neither yeah. one of y'all know methods and processes. Um, right. Neither one of y'all know why you need to design the thing for this person. And neither one of y'all know how to talk to people. Um, <laughs> right. And so I, I find that I'm able to bring that into the classroom a lot. Um, having been situated in both worlds for so long. Yeah. Whenever you, you say it? design, it's like really triggering for me as a <laughs> civil engineer. Right. And I teach a course on like engineering design and society and mm -hmm. it's all of the disciplines mm -hmm. that come into that classroom and nobody knows anything. Right. Mm -hmm. And our goal is to like give them an overview of all of the spaces in engineering, computing and help them see like how we're all connected right? because we really are. You can't, why am I designing any computer, anything, 
Mm-hmm. Where are we going to use that thing? What is it going to be connected to? Right? Like there's so many pieces of design that are necessary for computing to even work. Mm-hmm. So I find the it's the fuzzy soft stuff to be very frustrating. If you don't have the infrastructure, y'all are just making stuff for nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. And Christine, I wanted to ask you, is your lab pretty interdisciplinary? Like, do you take, and I might be jumping ahead a little bit, but like, um, what are the typical backgrounds of your students? And I know you mentioned like in the classroom, you kind of have to get people to a common understanding, but is it like that also in your lab? Um, right now, so there's kind of, um, it was, it's kind of like a flip. When I was at DePaul, my lab was very interdisciplinary because I had students properly in the School of Design. I had, you know, a couple of master students in HCI. Um, and then I had some undergrad students that would come from everywhere from psychology to, um, I had a student, uh, what was it? She was like, pre-med or something crazy because you're talking about wanting to do stuff with health at eight at um at cmu it's primarily phd students that are all in the hcii um and i've had a undergrad to work with me um it's not as interdisciplinary as i would like Do you think it'll take like a culture change there or just like just having more students and getting a little more like stuff running and off the ground and visibility? Probably all of the above. I think um, research culture at major research universities is interesting to learn and observe. Um <laughs> Because it's almost like um, organizational culture at an undergrad, where it's like mm-hmm. um, a lot of students moving around trying to figure out what they're interested in. Um, so recru- finding finding students is. It's almost like a competition a little bit. Like, is my research cool enough? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Are you cool enough? Am I cool enough? Um, But I think the strength here is having really awesome PhD students. Um, At DePaul, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to have a research lab in in the first place is because I wanted to expose more students who never would have known what HCI or design research is, um, or who never would have had an opportunity to be in a research lab. Like most of the students that worked in my lab when I was at DePaul, that was their first time ever doing research. That was wow. their first time ever working in a research lab. And we're talking about, I mean, you're taking someone who might have had just no skill set just to, hey, I saw your name and thought it was interesting. And I'm like, come on, let's do it. Um, Whereas at CMU, most of these students have like a research background. Like I said, they're coming in 
you know, oh, I've done internships here and there. Um, so it's less about exposing really anyone and more just about finding students who are genuinely interested mm-hmm. in the nature of the work that I'm doing. That's pretty cool. So um, I think one thing that I wanted to make sure that we chatted about, well, two things. Uh, we chatted earlier about, you know, 2020 and how everybody decided all of a sudden they care about black people. We had all these like diversity statements and things like that. Um, you were actually one of the first authors that were listed on the ACM call to action in 2020. So um, can you talk a bit about like where this came from and what was it about? That's interesting. Um, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> Um, I remember it just being one of those things where I was a little disappointed at the lack of response, um, to what was happening in that moment Mm -hmm. and feeling like not just ACM, but fields of computer science, HCI and design have pretty much gone under the radar for a really long time by saying that our our disciplines are apolitical mm. like we don't have anything to do with politics why would we respond to that why would we do and you're like that's a lie yeah <laughs> yeah everything is like what do you mean like from who you know when i talk about like you can name people that have never taken a design class can name don norman's book can you name any design text by a black woman, a Mm. black queer person, a black trans person, a black disabled person, a Hispanic disabled person, a disabled person. Um, All of it is political, but what we've been experiencing thus far is that the people who are the majority and make up these fields and disciplines have benefited from no one saying, hey, do y'all know that y'all are always at the forefront of this? Hmm. Right. So I think in 2020, and I don't remember who I reached out to first, probably Sheena or, you know, Yolanda or Tawana or somebody. And it was just like, wait, are they really not going to, if nothing else for the simple fact that, I mean, Nike or Apple, you know, was coming out with some type of statement of solidarity. Mm -hmm. It, without it, it paints this picture of that there is, you know, that, that infamous line from Charlottesville of like both sides. And there's like, there's no both sides of this. Right. Um, so I, I think that, writing the letter came out of that um a bunch of us hopped on a call and i know my name is first but i i would i will really say that this was a moment that i was led by you know folks who are more senior um and i just happen to be a person and i probably am not playing this role (laughs) in terms of the politics of academia but i don't mind um my name, you know, the whole like, oh, you probably shouldn't say that before tenure. 
I, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm laughing because Kyla's not that person either. I'm not <laughs> so either. Her face I'm like, was if funny it needs to, to be said, it needs to be said. So yeah, I that I'm, you didn't have that restriction. Like, look, this what is tenure going to do now? Like, it's an well, injustice right now. Yeah, and I feel like my whole body of work is kind of like I don't want to wait until tenure to talk about the things that I'm talking about. And I think when it was just focused on aging, it was fine because it's palatable, right? Like that's a whole, we have a whole area of like aging and HCI and aging and technology design. And that's what, you know, that was the draw to engineering psychology at Georgia Tech was the human factors and aging lab. Like, mm-hmm. but when we're, when we start to talk about the intersection of like aging and race or disability and race, which they're in they're they're entangled right um i didn't study african-american studies or anything like that in any of my degrees you don't hear me mention that i ever i mean i've always you know i've read books and things like that on the side of my studies but it was never something that i was like i'm going to be a race and technology scholar that was not it um literally i don't know who really does that though you know what i mean like well i mean now there are right like you know the ruha benjamins and stuff like that but there Mm -hmm. are people who set out to like craft those areas for themselves for me i fell into this by doing aging research and just experiencing so much anecdotal data Mm. and so much um like, you know, just glaring, like, discrepancies of... I remember, like, um, one of the studies I did when I was at Georgia Tech in the Human Factors and Aging Lab, and we were looking at the Xbox 360 with Connect as a device that older adults could use to be more active in the home, and we were looking at the heuristics of, like, you know, how well this worked, like, in terms of learnability for older adults, like... If, if you're not used to using video games and they're gesture based video games, you know, and, and we, we, we ended up like creating like a physical, um, uh, a, a guide, like a, like a, a tool, a resource for older adults to be able to visually see how to learn gestures while playing this video game. But as we're doing this testing, we're in Atlanta. And if you know anything about Atlanta, it's like, you know, Atlanta has pockets. You have like Buckhead, you have like East Atlanta, you have, you know, um, Southwest, you have like uh, Midtown, you have Bankhead, like you have all these areas. And when we would have older adults, because we would test in the home lab, which was this house um, that uh, Georgia Tech bought, gutted and turned into like a lab testing facility and had all of these sensors and each Mm -hmm. room had was like testing different things but it was an actual house so it had like a bedroom a kitchen a living room and so as older adults are coming to the home lab we're in the living room and we're testing the xbox 360 with connect and the older adults from like buckhead or like lawrenceville or like alpharetta even some you know living in the city and like piedmont park and stuff like that they come in and be like, oh, I never knew I could use this to do Tai Chi and do this and do this. <laughs> I'm going to go out and buy one because my grandkid yeah. has one. And now I can play, you know, there's this this, this concept of intergenerational play. That mm-hmm. I can I can learn this and surprise my grandson that now I know how to play the video games with him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then you would have the black or Hispanic older adults, most of which from just how we recruited 
would come from like North Ave, East Atlanta, or wherever, and they would be like, this is great, but I can't afford to spend $350 on a, a, a game and then $60, you know, on a game console and then $60 per game. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're like, in what we just tested, in all of the demographics that we collected, in all of the constructs that we examined, affordability um, and economic viability, like, is this sustainable economically? Is not something we even considered. Mm. So then we're publishing this paper and we're saying that this is a this is a, a viable option for older adults to get physically active, but it's like which older adults? Who? Yeah. Right. Older adults that have a socioeconomic status that mm-hmm. has four hundred, five hundred dollars of disposable income. Mm-hmm. These are their results. <laughs> and then you start to do other studies and you hear things like, Cool, but like all the avatars are white. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't really see myself in this video game and that might, that's not how I would do a gesture. Not because I don't understand the mechanics of moving my body, but more so that's not how I move my body. Right. Mm -hmm. That's not how I want to move my body. You know, like we, we (laughs) dance in a way that, you know, like it's not as robotic. It's not as formulated. It's it's not not as jerky. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when I went to do my postdoc at um, Northwestern, I decided to focus solely on doing research on black older adults or with black older adults. Um, Because I felt like what I was seeing in all of the studies I did in my doctorate was that we're still even trying to be like, we're trying to make this technology inclusive to this population, but we're still neglecting this subset of this aging population of this older adult population. Um, and then being in a city like Chicago where I did my postdoc is one of the biggest cities where you see, um, that split that like Chicago is a very segregated city. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Once you go past a certain point, it's like, oh, okay, here is like the blackness of Chicago, like Hyde Park, Bronzeville, those areas. But you go up to like Edgewood or Uptown or, you know, it looks like a completely different city to me as as someone who's not from there. And there's two different baseball teams. And there's yeah. the black people baseball team and the white people baseball team. I'm like, that, that's serious. Yeah. Um... And so it was it was a city where it was of great advantage to start thinking about um like the social constructs of design and technology, the social implications. Um what is the what is technology's what is the influence of surveillance technologies in certain communities because thus far when you go to design school or when you work at Apple or, you know, you, you do these things and it's all about, well, facial recognition is going to allow us to do this. You can unlock your phone with your face. No more need for passwords. No more need for this. No more need da, 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 this school. Da, da. Look at the emerging technology. And oh my God, look what we can do. And then Chicago. And it's funny because I'm starting to put together like a book proposal about 
um, building utopia and some other stuff. But I'm like, Chicago was not only the city where I started to think about the social implications of design, but that was directly a result of Chicago being the city that kind of like radicalized me. Mm. Um, Chicago was the first place I ever uh, participated in a protest. Chicago was the first place that I ever went to a union worker, a labor workers meeting um, with my homeboy, Chris Rudd, who is a really big designer in looking at anti-racism in design. Chris Rudd has done a lot in uh, the south side of Chicago talking about, you know, anti-racism design or anti-racist design um, and community-driven, community-engaged design. We kind of bonded over that. And he, you know, would bring me to, to some of the union labor meetings and we marched together in a couple of the pre-test, protests, even before 2020. Um, and then, you know, at the height of 2020, getting involved in the mutual aid that was necessary because I was living in the south side of Chicago when the pandemic hit and the um, when the, the uprisings um, kind of took place. And seeing that all of that is its own form of like, participatory design because how can we co-create the resources that we need when the city has flat out said i mean it was like the city flat out rose the bridges that would connect you know um the south like bronzeville and south loop to the, wow. the downtown loop area um to in in attempts to stop protesters from going from the south side into the city um what they felt like was destroying you know the beautiful vibrant areas of um chicago but really it was like y'all care more about this area than y'all do and it's not just evident in this moment but it's been evident Mm -hmm. uh you read up on the history of you know radical movements in chicago and you're like oh this is you know this is why this is why chicago has this feel it's it's a very interesting i miss it sometimes comes like it's a very interesting like when you like you read up on like fred hampton and like the black panther party and all that stuff that like took place um in chicago at, at various points throughout like our history um chicago has a very unique like when you when you're in the city like that it has that feel of of you know people just being very conscious and aware of um the positioning that the city of Chicago has kind of placed on house like I said housing segregation on resource segregation on um you know why the school system is designed in the way it is it's one of the few places that you can't vote on the super, what is it the superintendent mm, um really? instead in Chicago it's appointed by the mayor wow um, and I want to make sure I'm saying that correctly. I don't want to misspeak, but, um, yeah. So like my research, it just kind of took this turn of like, okay, now all of a sudden I'm talking about race. And as a lifelong learner, I'm getting to read a lot because, you know, you don't ever want to be ignorant. And like, there's been so much analysis on race and technology prior to me getting here. 
are getting to this point of, of focusing on this that um, I want to make sure I'm doing justice that I'm actually building upon what's what already exists. But that's kind of how that came about was like, I'm seeing these injustices just on the, the usability side of things. And then the social side of things kind of just was like big red flag. Like, yeah, she ain't it, bro. You know, like, right. Run. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And I feel like the social part impacts the usability part. Like there's, you can't study them in isolation. Like mm-hmm. they exist one because of the other. But um, one other thing I want to make sure that we get a chance to chat about. Um, can you tell us about the Building Utopia deck slash toolkit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that also kind of emerged out of that moment. I had started to do research. I like to think that my, my research is like there's like two parallel lanes of design um, to promote health equity um, and, and social inclusion. And then how do we expand, like I said, how do we expand access to design and how do we think about more critical forms of participatory design um, and community-based participatory design? And so um, in 2020, we were doing this study looking at, um, you know, what will be the future of um, online work or just the future of, of engagement after this, this moment of the pandemic um, when everything had to be remote, but um, people were really thinking about, you know, what was happening so sh- like in, in, in society as a whole. Um, and one of the things we started to consider was like, well, what does it mean to have um, tools and resources that communities can think about this on their own? Um, where we as researchers, academic researchers or industry researchers don't have to be present to lead a design project or design effort. So we started designing this toolkit that um, folks could use in the absence of like an academic uh, professor or, or researcher or whatever. Um, and we wanted it to be entrenched in uh, Afrofuturism um, as a, you know, a form of speculative design, because we oftentimes don't see ourselves in the methods and processes of design. Um, again, because, you know, the, um, design of everyday things is the North star or right. 101, um, universal design methods is the North star. We, you know, don't see, um, our reflection. And so we started designing Building Utopia as an Afrofuturist speculative design toolkit as a way to kind of shift what that North Star is and as a way to design um, a process and, and tool where Black folks saw themselves, they saw their lineage, they saw their heritage, they saw the ways that we think about the world. So um, there are five card decks where um, we walk people through the design pro- or modified version of the design process um, where we're thinking about, you know, where in the future are we thinking? What topics are we thinking about? And those topics range from everything from um, gentrification to environmental racism to more positive concepts like black joy or, um, you know, honoring our ancestors or leaving a legacy 
Um, we have a liberation deck, which kind of is kind of like the 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 framing. Um, so when you think about like the temperament of how you're addressing this topic, um, how do we think about that through a lens of liberation? Um, mm. So how do we think about black joy considering like moments where I feel free? Or, um, you know, how we build community or how we gather community. Um, we then have the methods deck, which is, you know, how do we introduce people to um, the, those, you know, a, a derivative of those traditional design methods. So we walk people through like paired ideation or concept sketching or community conversations instead of like a formal interview, right? Because mm -hmm. sometimes, um, and, and a lot of the research that I've done, sometimes those formal processes that we have in design can mirror things that have been very harmful or traumatic for certain communities. So if we say this is no longer like a formal interview, but it's a community conversation, and we're going to talk about a solution to environmental racism or leaving our legacy, and then the last deck, um, we've provided people with examples of different solutions to some of these topics, but again, that are very community focused and driven. So things like um, community art installations or murals or mutual aid, like how do we design a mutual aid that's going to address um, like, you know, food deserts or, or um, you know, mental health um issues that that might be seen in our community and we've taken this toolkit um i mean granted most of it has been virtual because of the pandemic but we've had people testing this toolkit um in detroit and chicago and dc um in atlanta um, i have a student that's using it for her dissertation out in colorado um we've we've done workshops with this toolkit literally all over the US. Um, we've been really surprised at the reaction and feedback, like the the response to it, like having been so positive um, and so many people wanting to, you know, to rock with us with what we're doing with the toolkit. So yeah, yeah, I'm like, I need a toolkit because these are really interesting concepts. So. Yeah, we just put, we have um, we have some card decks up on the website for order. Um, we just, can you tell we people just the launched, website so they can uh, yeah, know so where to get one? It's buildingutopiadeck.com. So buildingutopiadeck, all spelled the normal way, dot com. Um, right now... Uh, as of what is this December 13th, we have some card decks <laughs> on the website for a sale for immediate shipping. Um, we've been doing pre-orders where we take like a bunch of bulk orders and then ship out. But um, we are now in a space where we can do more immediate shipping. So you'll get them within five to seven business days. Um, and if you want to order an entire toolkit, um, we're ta we are taking bulk orders. Um, we're now sh shipping internationally. Um, so if you have an interest for a bulk order, you can just email us. That email address is buildingutopiadeck at gmail.com. Um, you can check out our Instagram at buildingutopiadeck, um, where we post a lot of what we're doing, the events that we've had. We've had a couple of launch parties to, um, introduce the deck in the DC market and the Atlanta market, 
um, as well as, like I said, workshops that happen all over the place. If you want us to come and do a workshop, you can hit us on our, our social media or our email or our contact page on our website. Um, Jen Roberts, who um, does that side of things, like the workshop side of things and the educational side of things, and um, has has been leading those and doing an amazing job. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much, Christina. And do you have any public facing uh, social media that you would like people to contact you on or follow you on or anything like that? Uh, usually my Twitter, my Instagram, y'all does not talk about my research. <laughs> <laughs> but does it have to? <laughs> it It is. That is a little bit more of my personal life. Uh, a little bit. I'm, I'm even starting to like uh, scale that back a little bit, but, um, mainly Twitter is where I talk about all things research, um, all things where academia needs to do better. Um, all things Boston Celtics, all <laughs> things, real housewives of Potomac. That is yes. what my Twitter is about unapologetically. <laughs> um, and Joe Biden for giving me student loans. If he's listening, this is another chance. Um, uh, Mr. President, for you to do what's right, do what you told us you were gonna, <laughs> you were gonna do. Yeah, Hilarious. we like to think of Joey B as a listener of the podcast too. Yes, I hope he's he definitely is. a listener. He's a silent sure. supporter. I'm sure he is. <laughs> oh goodness! Thank you so much, Christina. This is wonderful. I started yes. out like, okay, we're gonna get her to talk, and now I'm like, <laughs> she talked. So I'm really excited. Yeah, thank you for was- the opportunity. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was really nice getting to know you. Yes. As always, you can find us on our website, modernfigurespodcast.com. Send your questions to askus at modernfigurespodcast.com. And follow us on Twitter. Kyla is at Dr. Underscore Kyla, and I am at Jeremy Waysom. Visit modernfiguresinc.com to learn more about our nonprofit organization aimed at promoting and engaging with women and girls interested in science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and of course, computing. Until next time, stay moisturized, hydrated, mind your business, and protect your peace. <laughs>